Amen. We'll remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We'll continue our series in the book of Isaiah, chapter 40. If you would turn there in your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 40. Pastor Josh will be preaching from verses 9 through 11, but I'll begin back at the beginning of the chapter in verse 1. And so we'll read out this, this whole portion of Scripture. Hear God's word now from Isaiah chapter 40, starting in verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. This is God's word. Amen. Let's take our seats. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, as we come now to your word, we pray that you would grant us the grace to receive food from you, to be strengthened by what we hear, and then the power of your spirit, Lord, to put it in practice as we go out to serve you in all the different areas of business, at work, at home, in politics, in education, with our friends and neighbors. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know what you like to do over the summer, but uh, often Sunday afternoons are a special time over the summer. Uh, this Sunday afternoon, I'm going to a banquet which will be inside, so that will be uh, an interesting uh, summer experience. But, uh, and uh, and it, it sounds very fancy, a banquet, but it's... it's and it will be very fancy. It's actually for one of my daughters. I'm going off on a tangent more than I expected to do. But anyway, the point of this opening illustration is that uh, if you like art uh, and uh, you go down to the Art Institute of Chicago, you'll see a very famous uh, piece of art there uh, by Georges Seurat, um, which is uh, Sunday afternoon. Um, at uh, Le Grand Jot, and uh, it is uh, famous for all sorts of different reasons. It appears in um, popular um, movies. It was a, a, a piece in Ferris Bueller's uh, Day Off, if you've seen that movie. And uh, it, it's, it's an amazing experience to actually see it live. I've only done it once, but I, I, I much enjoyed it. You go, that's huge. 
Uh, but of course, uh, Georges Seurat had a particular technique of painting uh, that has been called pointillism. So rather than using broad brushstrokes, when he painted this massive canvas of people relaxing on a, on a uh, summer uh, Sunday afternoon, uh, he used little dots of paint. And uh, I'm told, actually, that sometimes he used two paintbrushes at one time, and he'd put them next to each other as he was painting. And he did this because the, the scientific theory at the time when he was painting was that, that optics actually, if you put the, the contrasting little bits of paint next to each other and then stood back, it would blend into a picture that gave that picture increased vibrancy. And certainly when you look at that painting, it does have massive vibrancy. A similar sort of scientific theory is behind our TV screens of all their tiny little pixels which are little points of color, and then when you step back, you can see the whole picture. Uh, in the passage we're looking at this morning, there are two, if you like, points of color that are intended to be seen together. They are the convergent excellencies of God himself. And when we see them together... It really is a, life, uh, a life-changing experience, but not only a life-changing experience, it shows us truly who God is and who the prophet is talking about. What the passage is saying here this morning is that comfort, and we've been defining comfort as a broader meaning than simply a nice, comfortable, easy time. He doesn't mean comfort by that. He means, as, he, as we'll go through this chapter, and he talks then about uh, those who hope in the Lord will, ha- will renew their strength. They'll rise up on, on wings like eagles. They'll run and not grow weak. It's a, it's a, comfort isn't simply sentimental ease. It's spiritual strength, ultimately salvation. Comfort comes, this passage this morning is saying, when we focus, so this, this focusing, this visioning, this looking, when we focus upon these two things, our sovereign shepherd. And we tend, tend to separate those two things, uh, power and might and sovereignty, uh, shepherding and care and compassion. And yet here in this passage, they're deliberately these, these divergent excellencies of God himself converge. A little like the pointillism in Georges Seurat's painting to create an extraordinary picture of who God is. Comfort comes when we focus upon our sovereign shepherd together. Now, why should we give this our attention uh, this morning? A number of different reasons. We've seen already how great there is a need for comfort these days. We're living in a time when people are feeling a sense of, uh, of disconnection from life. They're, they're needing a, a renewed sense of meaning. They're needing to be reassured. And we've, we've thought about that. But then why are people not flocking to the church of course, here at College Church, we feel that God, we're experiencing God's blessing, and there are many other churches similarly. But if you listen to the cultural conversation, people looking for comfort in all sorts of other areas, but not in God himself. Why is that? 
It's because these divergent excellencies of God have been split apart. When we think of God's sovereignty, we think of power, and as the well-known phrase puts it, we, 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 power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, and we're nervous of conversations about God's might and his power and his sovereignty. On the other hand, we, we hear about um, uh, care and compassion and, and being kind, and, and for another group of people that seems kind of wimpy, pathetic in not a good way, not strong enough to deal with the problems of our world. And so we've been looking for comfort elsewhere. I mean, I, I, this is an extreme example, but Hugh Hefner, who was the uh, founder of Playboy magazine, is reported to have said at the end of his life, I've spent my life looking, again, focus where you're looking, looking for love in all the wrong places. Where are you looking for love or comfort or courage or strength or renewal? This passage is telling us that it comes when we focus upon our sovereign shepherd. Let's see how it teaches us that from these verses 9 to 11. First of all, I want you to notice again this voice. Uh, verse 9, go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God, this voice. This is the third of these three voices. You remember that Isaiah 40 is a recommissioning of the prophet to speak, verse 2, tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her, her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned, the comfort we saw comes from the gospel, there's forgiveness for sins. And now God commissions these three voices that are a dramatization are the three aspects of that gospel proclamation that gives us comfort. We saw the first voice, uh, verses uh, 3 to 5, which is that the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Incarnate in Jesus Christ, He is the glorious one. God's glory that tabernacled in the temple, now tabernacled in Jesus, that's where the glory is. And that, of course, when we see that, gives us comfort because we now know what is truly glorious. That is, well, as we sung earlier, give me Jesus. And then the second voice that we looked at uh, last week is verses 6 to 8, which is about the word of our God, which will stand forever. Nothing else is ultimately faithful. The hesed or the faithfulness of people is unreliable. It will wither but when the Spirit of the Lord or the breath of the Lord blows, when the Spirit gives conviction, we realize that actually in our own strength and in the strength of any human endeavor, uh, it's ultimately unreliable. And indeed, we're, we're con convicted 
of our moral failure, of sin, which is the work, of course, of the Spirit, according to Jesus, the Comforter who will come to convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment and lead us to listen to the Word of our God. And so we thought last week about the importance of the Word of our God. Well, now here comes this next and third of the three voices. And this voice, as I said, is saying, focus upon our sovereign shepherd, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But I want you to notice how exalted, literally, this third voice is meant to, meant to be. Go up onto a high mountain, O Zion. And then how amplified the voice is meant to be. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Why? Fear not. So as Martin Luther put it in his uh, lectures on this passage, every Christian is meant to be an evangelist. Now, I'm a preacher, I'm a herald of the good news, and this uh, herald of good news uh, in the Hebrew is one word which is translated in the Greek as evangelist, so therefore rightly translated in our English as herald of good news. I'm a preacher of the gospel, I'm to teach God's people, and according to the Apostle Paul, I'm also to do the work of evangelism, but everyone is a Christian. The whole of Jerusalem... Zion, God's people, we together to get up high onto a mountain, lift up our voice with strength. That is, we're not to be quiet about who God is and how great he is. We are to get as big and high a platform as we can as a church. Not for ourselves or our own message, but for the gospel. Listen, if you are an engineer... I was uh, talking to a friend just this week who I uh, knew back when he was an undergraduate student who's now um, very senior uh, as a, um, a, in, in finance in uh, New York City. He has a massive platform. One of the things he's doing, running a Bible study. Think of your platform at school, at work, Yes, we gather as a church, but then we scatter as a church. And wherever we go, Jerusalem, wherever we go, find a way to be a herald of the good news. Don't be quiet. Don't fear. I know it's difficult, and people tell me about how hard it is to talk about Jesus these days, but think of that friend of mine who's in New York City running a Bible study for friends over lunch. Perhaps you could do that. Well, what is the message this voice is in particular to give? Well, comfort comes and we focus upon our sovereign shepherd. And what I want you to notice now in verses 10 to 11 is how this otherwise apparently divergence sovereign power, uh, shepherd, caring, is intended to come together our sovereign shepherd. And it's structured to indicate this in a number of really quite remarkable ways. First, there's a deliberately repeated three. Uh, Behold, uh, first time right at the end uh, of uh, verse 9, behold your God. Then again, behold the Lord comes with might. And then again, um, behold his reward is with him. 
And then with each of those three looks or focus, a call to focus, behold, see where we're focusing, there are these three aspects of God's sovereignty. And then to mirror that deliberately, it's just beautifully structured, come then three aspects of his, uh, of his shepherding. In verse 11, he'll tend his flock like a shepherd. Then here are the three aspects. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He'll carry them in his bosom. And he'll gently lead those that are with young. Three mirrored, indicating they go together. But what is more, not only that, that three mirroring, mirroring to indicate they go together, there's a deliberate connection that like a rhetorical bolt or staple connects the two halves. So it says in verse 10, and his arm rules for him. And then verse 11, he will gather them in his, uh, the lambs in his arms. Or literally, it's actually in the singular, he will gather the lambs in his arm. Indicating these two go together. His arm is an arm of power and might. He's sovereign, uh, but his arm is also an arm of care and compassion, and they go together. Well, what are those three aspects of his sovereignty? Uh, well, first of all, he is, his sovereignty is personal. Behold your God, your God. God's sovereignty, we often think of it in terms of transcendence, but it is actually imminent. Uh, the deist thought that God's sovereignty meant that he was somehow distant. He'd set the ball of the world rolling in creation and now he was distant. But no, behold your God. He's imminent. Uh, as uh, the Lord Jesus taught us to pray, we pray to our Father. He's our God. We have a relationship with this sovereign. So it's personal but it's also powerful. Verse 10, behold, this is the second behold of the three. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him. He is almighty and all-powerful. And of course, this is a constant source of comfort for God's people. However big the problem that you may be facing is, God is bigger. However great may be the challenge you face, God is greater. However awful may be the news that you've received this week, God is more awesome. Our God is a God of might, personal, yes, but also powerful. And then the final of these three about God's sovereignty, behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. It's a very difficult um, piece to translate. Again, Luther thinks this is a Hebraism. And I suspect Luther's Hebrew was better than mine, and I, I follow him. I think he's probably right. In other words, what he's saying, Luther's saying here, is this is a way that the Hebrew language talks, and in particular what it's talking about is how that with God and his word comes success, fruit. Or we might say it's productive, his sovereignty, not only personal and powerful, but also productive. It's effective. There'll be success. Uh, now, to some extent, and of course eternally. 
His reward is with him. You will not on the last day ever think, why did I give my life to Jesus? You'll be glad of every investment you made in Jesus and his kingdom. His reward is with him. His sovereignty is personal, powerful, and productive. But then let's look at his shepherding, our sovereign shepherd. And that too is in three, but it's introduced by an emphasis. So it says he will tend his flock like a shepherd. But literally it is, in the Hebrew, he will shepherd his flock like a shepherd. And the Hebrew tends, as we do in English, to repeat for emphasis. It's saying, listen, yes, I've just made a point about his sovereignty, but he's a, he's a shepherd who's sovereign. He's a shepherd who shepherds. Listen to that. Don't be scared of giving your life to God. He's a shepherd who shepherds. How does he shepherd? Well, there are three verbs. There are two different ways, I think, of looking at this three. One is by the verbs, he will gather. So that's, of course, the evangelistic approach. He will carry. That's the way God leads us in life and grows us. And then he will lead, uh, that is, to have an impact in our life. As a church, we mirror not deliberately this passage, but I think it's reflected in our, what we call our pathway, which is discover Jesus, grow in your faith, and impact the world. Or here, he gathers his sheep, he carries them, and he leads them. Uh, that's one way of looking at these three, but I think the other way is to notice that each of the three, though different, underlines his care for the vulnerable who does he gather? The lambs in his arm. Um, where does he carry them? In his bosom. It's a rather strange translation for contemporary English, isn't it? But the point is he doesn't put the sheep on his back and carries it by his legs like that. He, uh, he, he carries it in front. He's, the, the image is he's hugging uh, the lamb. It's a very beautiful image, isn't it? And then he gently leads uh, those that are with young. Gently there isn't in the original, but it's a perfectly fair addition because, of course, there is gentleness here everywhere. But the point, the emphasis of this bit is that he leads those that are with young. You need to notice that, that word with. Here it's not talking about the young. It's talking about those that are with young. And in the Hebrew, it's very specific, is talking about nursing mothers. Of course, if you're a nursing mother, you're particularly vulnerable and probably particularly exhausted as well. Uh, we had Don Carson uh, preach here a few weeks ago, and some of you know that I've known uh, Don for many, many years. When I was doing my PhD at Cambridge, he used to go over there and study. He had this amazing deal where once a year for a year, he would go and study in Cambridge. It's an amazing deal. I've often thought I might like it myself, but it never happened for me. Once a year, anyway, he was over in Cambridge, and I got to know him a little bit over there when I was uh, doing my research. And I, of course, heard him preach. I couldn't hear him in person last time uh, he preached here because I was off at one of our church plants uh, trying to support them. But um, I, I listened afterwards online, and he, he gave a wonderful message. But I've heard him preach many times. And one of the stories that Don likes to tell 
is of another preacher, another great preacher who's now in glory, called Lloyd-Jones. And Lloyd-Jones, um, and I know the family a little bit, uh, um, his daughter used to go to the church that I was a pastor at in Cambridge. I never knew the doctor, but I knew the family a bit. But Lloyd-Jones was a great preacher and a strong man. There's no doubt that he had a certain kind of strength in his personality. Um, you listened when the doctor spoke. Um, and the story that Don tells about Lloyd-Jones is one time when he was preaching to a group of medical students. And of course, Dr. Lloyd-Jones had been a, a prominent medical doctor himself. And so he had a certain cachet, a certain connection with medical students. And he was preaching to this group of medical students, and he was insisting that they have a daily quiet time with God, read the Bible every single day. And, he, and, he, and uh, according to the story I've heard Don tell many times, uh, Lloyd-Jones was getting some pushback on this. Because, of course, if you're a medical student, you're very busy. You're a resident. These are residents of hospital. You all through the night and much in the next day, you're very busy, very exhausted. And there, there was some kind of pushback that, you know, you really think I should have a quiet time every single day? And Lloyd-Jones was holding the line. Yes, you must have a quiet time every single day. And then he said, I make one exception to this rule. Nursing mothers with small children. I remember when we had small children, uh, Rochelle used to joke that she now understood why sleep deprivation was used as a means of torture. We must take care of the nursing mothers, of the young children, both. But of course, this isn't only, I mean, it's not only literal, is it? He's not literally talking about sheep, and it's not merely about nursing mothers and young children. The emphasis is on the, the more abstract idea of the vulnerable that then applies to the disabled, the weak in faith, the discouraged. It's so important, isn't it, that we reflect that combination of God's character, sovereign and shepherd. And so seldom do we experience that. I remember when I was um, a, st a student uh, trying to earn a little bit of money over the summer, and one of the things I did was I taught English as a foreign language. I didn't have uh, many skills other than beginning to learn to preach, but I could speak English, so I decided to teach English as a foreign language. It's something I could get paid for. And so I was doing this, and there was one uh, teaching English as a foreign language um, job I had that went on for two weeks. And then immediately afterwards, there was another job doing essentially the same thing in a different part of the country. And uh, the first experience was amazing. The leader of that group was just um, so kind. And we had a wonderful time. And I still remember just the fun of being a part of that environment as a team. And, and uh, he, he wrote me a, a glowing reference afterwards. I think it's the best reference I've ever had written in my whole life. I wish I'd kept it, you know. It's just a great time. And then immediately afterwards, I went to do essentially the same job, teaching English as a foreign language, in a different part of the country, under a different leadership, in a different organization, and that leader 
Well, I think he hardly knew I existed. And if he did, it was pretty unpleasant and manipulative. I remember after the week had been over, uh, overhearing him talking to his boss, trying to negotiate for yet more money for him. He was a very manipulative person, and it was an extremely unpleasant couple of weeks. And we tend to think of authority in that second way, don't we? And power in that second way. And yet God is sovereign. And yes, we are called to submit to his power, his authority. And yet he's a shepherd too. And uh, where is this reflected? Well, of course, um, the book of Isaiah uh, tells us. Uh, that all we like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid on him, that is on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He's that kind of shepherd. And in the canonical structure of the Bible, it tells us that this shepherd is the good shepherd. And we had that read out earlier in the service from John chapter 10, that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. But he's not only the good shepherd, he's also the great shepherd, as the book of Hebrews tells us because he died for the sheep and then rose again and therefore he's the great shepherd and as uh, the book of first Peter puts it not only is he the good shepherd the great shepherd he's also the chief shepherd because as Peter tells us he's coming back this is our sovereign shepherd who gives his life for the sheep And is good, great, and chief. And comfort comes when we focus upon our sovereign shepherd. So many other things we could focus upon, aren't there? But Isaiah is saying, behold him. Okay, well, you say, well, what does that mean in practice? How can I do it? Let me give three applications for us. First of all, an application to pastors, to shepherds. And of course, we must have that application, mustn't we? Obviously, I'm a pastor, but there are many pastors here at the church. But there are many uh, people who pastor without the title pastor as well, to shepherding, to leadership, to Christian pastoring. Our shepherding is to be modeled after this shepherd, in fact, Jesus very explicitly says this. So you have John chapter 10, where he says the good shepherd is the one who lays down his life for the sheep, not like the thief or the robber and all the rest. And then when he commissions Peter at the end of John's gospel to be a shepherd, he tells Peter he's going to have to give up his life too. So the very nature, and of course the Lord Jesus said the same thing to the Apostle Paul, I I will show him how much he must have to suffer for my name. But the very nature of what it means to be a gospel shepherd is self-sacrifice. That's what it means to be a shepherd, biblically. How do you know who the good shepherd is? Jesus says the good shepherd is the one who lays down his life for the sheep. What then, Peter, should you be like? Well, Now, he does say, you must feed my sheep. 
So it's, to be a shepherd is not to be driven around by all the sheep and do whatever they want and waste your time as like a handholder or something like that. As, as the Apostle Paul says, shepherding is teaching. That's how we shepherd the sheep. Jesus rules the church. He's sovereign. He rules through his word. The task of an under-shepherd is to shepherd the flock through teaching the word. Feed the sheep, Peter. Teach the Bible, Timothy, Paul says. So we're not to just... Uh, to be a shepherd of a church is not to run an institution. It's not to be a handholder. It's not like you know, uh, birth, uh, marriage, and funerals. Being a pastor is not just hatch, match, and dispatch. It, it, it's teaching the Bible. And, of course, there's a note of authority that must come with that because it's God's Word. But the very heart of what it means to be a shepherd is self-sacrifice. I get very, very confused when sometimes, I, obviously, we at times have to hire people or we, we put people on the mission field or church plants and that kind of thing. And I sometimes listen to what people are saying and I say, well, you know, so why do you want to be a pastor? And someone will say, well, it's always been on my heart. It's like, well, who cares about that? I've always wanted to teach. Who cares what you want? You're a shepherd. You're not there to do what you want by its very nature. You're there to give up what you want. And so a word to pastors and shepherds. But then, of course, there's a word to sheep here, isn't there? Uh, we should, um, now I know, and I suppose many of us know, there have been all sorts of difficulties in the American church over the last 10, 15 years, the different kinds of scandals and what have you. And there are certain kinds of religious organizations that you should run from. You, you don't want to be shepherded by a thief or a hireling or a, an abusive personality. But you do want to listen to shepherding from God's word. You say, how do I tell the difference? The, the famous old illustration of this, I think, is probably the best. So the story goes that there was a, a tour guide taking tourists through Jerusalem. And the tour guide on the tour bus was explaining to the tourists that uh, in the ancient world, shepherds call their sheep and the sheep follow, they don't drive their sheep. And he was explaining how this worked in, in the Middle East, still replicating what happened in the ancient world. And he was talking like this, and then all the tourists looked out the window, and they saw exactly the reverse taking place. There was actually a shepherd driving the sheep forward and kind of pushing them forward. And you know, they said, hey, you're saying it doesn't work like that. Look out the window. And uh, the story is that the tour guide immediately got the drive of the bus to stop, opened the door, ran out to the shepherd, and all the tourists kind of crammed in the window watched the rather animated conversation happen between the, the, the tour guide and this person who'd been driving the sheep. And it went on for a few minutes, and then uh, the tour guide came back onto the bus and grabbed the microphone and looked at all the tourists who were waiting to hear what he had to say, and he said, don't worry He's not the shepherd, he's the butcher. Well, don't listen to butchers. But don't abandon shepherds. 
But then, of course, most of all for all of us, we all need to focus on our sovereign shepherd, who is Jesus. Let's pray together. We thank you, Lord, for these uh, divergent excellencies that are in your personality, that you are sovereign and powerful, uh, but also a shepherd and caring, and you care for the vulnerable. Help us to do that as a church, Lord, uh, the vulnerable in faith, uh, the vulnerable physically, the children and the nursing mothers and those who are disabled or confused. Uh, by the same token, Lord, help us also to reflect um, your sovereign word and to hold firmly to the truth and not give an inch in terms of the orthodox gospel. And we pray, Lord, that uh, you would help us all to focus upon you primarily. We know all humans fail. And you, Lord Jesus, are our shepherd. And uh, we are so grateful. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.